0: Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 36, Deuteronomy chapters 26 and 27. We started uh, Deuteronomy chapter 26 last week, and we're going to finish it this week and get well into chapter 27. Now, chapter 26 began a four-chapter section that marks the end of a, of a rather lengthy review and reminder of the law as given on Mount Sinai. And it begins that part of Moses' sermon that deals with the more mystical, the, the more spiritual aspects of what is expected of Israel in its new formed relationship with God, with Yehovah. Now, I say mystical and spiritual in a couple of senses. First is that the spirit of the law, what what the Apostles James and Paul would probably call true religion, is vital. This is vital in carrying out the individual rules and regulations previously laid out. And second is that there are aspects of God's nature and His Word that are just beyond man's ability to entirely comprehend. And at the same time, He has also given to Israel straightforward instructions, laws and commands, that, that are fully understandable to all men. Now, the nature of God's Word is that it consists of various levels of depth. The the notion that that God's word spans a range from the most plain and straightforward to the deepest and most mystical has been captured in an interesting rabbinical principle of scripture study. And that that principle says that there are essentially four definable levels or, or perhaps dimensions of, of learning and of biblical examination. Pshat, Remez, Drash, and Sod. Pshat means the most straightforward intended meaning. Remez is what you read between the lines. Drash is, is an interpreting, interpretive meaning. It can be even allegorical to a degree. Sod is the most mystical. It's the most esoteric. So to be clear, it's not that scripture is divided up such that some of it's shot, other scriptures is rames and so on. Rather, it is that all scripture passages can be examined on each of these four levels. But it's also generally agreed that all scripture is not alike. Some scripture is inherently more straightforward, some is inherently more mystical. Some is meant to be taken more at face value, other is meant to be looked at far more deeply. Thus, what can be gained by examining the word using each of these four levels is going to vary somewhat according to the, the relevant passage. So the four-chapter section, beginning with Deuteronomy chapter 26, is dealing with passages that are on the more mystical side. And and thus they're a little more conducive to yielding up their meaning when we study them using the sowed level of examination, the most mystical. Now, one of these instructions is that upon entering the promised land, a series of first fruit ceremonies and festivals are to begin. And, And they're to be accompanied with declarations by each Israelite that his own personal identity is wrapped up in Israel's redemption history. Therefore, the declaration that each Israelite states when he's bringing his first fruit offerings up is that this set-apart people was created by an act of God. And that the founder was a wanderer from Aram, Abraham. And eventually, through Abraham, this led to Jacob, who, with but a few people that formed his clan, they went down into Egypt, where his family became enslaved, and yet it grew enormously. And after that, God rescued and redeemed them, and he brought them to the land of Canaan which he gave to the Israelites as their land possession. And as a result of this reality, Israel is to give back to the Lord out of gratitude. The first of every new harvest. And they're to share that bounty with widows and orphans and foreigners that are living in the land. Let's uh, begin tonight by rereading a portion of Deuteronomy chapter 26. Deuteronomy chapter 26, uh, we'll start at verse 12, so open your, if you have a complete Jewish Bible, page 225. Deuteronomy 26, beginning at verse 12. After you have separated a tenth of the crops yielded in the third year, the year of separating a tenth, and have given it to the uh, uh, levy, the, the the Levites, the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow, so that they can have enough food to satisfy them while they're staying with you, you are to say, in the presence of Adonai your God, I have rid my house of the things set aside for God and have given them to the Levites, the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow, in keeping with every one of the mitzvot, the, the commandments, that you've given me. I haven't disobeyed any of your mitzvot or forgotten them. I haven't eaten any of this food when mourning. I haven't put any of it aside when unclean. Nor have I given any of it for the dead. I haven't put um I I, I have listened to what Adonai my God has said. I have done everything you ordered me to do. Look out from your holy dwelling place, from heaven. Bless your people, Israel, the land you gave us as you swore to our ancestors, a land flowing with milk and honey. Today, Adonai, your God, orders you to obey these laws and rulings. Therefore, you are to observe and obey them with all of your heart, with all of your being. You are agreeing today. That Adonai is your God. That you will follow his ways. Observe his laws, his commands and his rulings. Do what he says. In turn, Adonai is agreeing today that you are his own unique treasure. As he promised you. That you are to observe all of his commands. That he will raise you high above all the nations he has made in praise, reputation, glory, and that, as he said, you will be a holy people for Adonai your God. It's become common in the church to think that our total monetary obligation is to give a tithe of a tenth of our income to our local church. And by doing so, this fulfills any biblical duty that we might have in in regard to our own possessions or prosperity. Now, even though the entire concept of tithing is introduced, explained, defined in the Older Testament, because we call ourselves a New Testament church, then we see ourselves as having no further obligation to give anything beyond 10%. Another alternative church doctrine is that if we feel some kind of spiritual unction within us to give, then we give according to the direction of that unction. But if we have no spiritually led unction to give, we have no duty to give anything at all. Now I can tell you with full confidence that none of these three common doctrines concerning giving are scriptural. None of them. As we've seen in the earlier books of the Torah, there were several kinds of giving and tithing that all operated simultaneously. In other words, you don't select one or two types, your favorites, from a list of possibilities. Choose one from column A, one from column B. New. Each type was to occur at its prescribed time for its prescribed purpose. One was to offer sacrifices of animals and grains to God at the altar for various reasons. Then where there were the first fruit ceremonies that occurred multiple times during the year. In addition to that, there was support for the tabernacle and temple workers and the infrastructure uh, that the giving of money uh, for vows supported. Right? In addition, there was support for the poor, support for the needy. And this is hardly an exhaustive list of the several kinds and purposes of giving obligations that were called for. Later, when the apostles were out preaching and teaching the gospel, Paul argued that it was the duty of the Messianic community to support these evangelists just as much as they supported the temple. Now please notice that this was not that they were to stop supporting the temple in order to support the bearers of the good news. They were not to merely shift their giving from one designated purpose to another. Okay? It was to be in addition to all the other forms of giving prescribed by the Torah. Giving to Paul and to Peter and the others did not negate the Torah requirements for giving. Now, naturally, once the temple was destroyed the priesthood disbanded, certain types of giving became impossible. So our tithes and offerings and general giving isn't so straightforward, so neat and clean and relatively inexpensive, all right, as has become kind of the Western church model for it. What is described beginning in verse 12 is what came to be known as the poor tithe. And every third year, a Hebrew individual's tithe was to be set aside in their local village as a means to support the poor. And this particular tithe was just one of several kinds of giving and and, and the purpose of this specific one was to restock the warehouses from which the poor and the needy and the foreigners could draw. Therefore, Instead of the usual manner, which first fruits were taken to the temple and there the worshiper would feast on some of those first fruits, every third year they were given as a poor tithe. Interestingly though, the reality is that because Israel operated on a sabbatical year system, a year of seven, a system of seven rolling cycles, The schedule of this poor tithe was three years, three years, four years. In other words, a seven, in a seven year cycle, year three was the first poor tithe year, year six was the second poor tithe year, but since the seventh year was a year in which no crops were grown, then no tithes of first fruits were given whatsoever. Not to the temple, not to anybody. So after the giving of the poor tithe in year 6 of the 7-year cycle, another poor tithe would not be due until year 3 of the next 7-year cycle, a span of 4 years then having gone by. Now believe me, the Israelites eventually grew tired of obeying God in their financial matters and so they modified to their favor the regulations of tithing and first fruits. The temple in particular didn't much care for that loss of income every third year of the sabbatical cycle. Nor did they like not having control over what went to the poor. <coughs> so about a century before Yeshua was born, the high priest John Hyrcanus, who was an illegitimate high priest, by the way, that had been installed by the Hasmon family, he declared the abolition of the poor tithe. The modern church has kind of picked up on this, and many of the largest denominations require that all of its members' tithes and offerings go to their local church, and then that church leadership will decide how it's to be doled out. Well, when giving the poor tithe, the farmer is to make a declaration to the Lord, more or less in the form of a vow. And the farmer first states that he has indeed offered up that portion of his produce that was set aside for God and he's held nothing back. Now this may sound like a harmless nicety or a bit of a formality, but the reality is that this is all about the inherently dangerous situation of dealing with God's holy property. That which is set aside for God is His, even before it's physically given to Him in some kind of ceremony or ritual. Now we see that principle that I just spoke of developed early in the Torah. At the moment that a worshiper even mentally selected a particular animal that he intended to offer as a sacrifice, the ownership of that animal essentially transferred to Yehovah. God's holy property is a sensitive matter to him, and those who try to misappropriate his holy property often suffered the death penalty. This hasn't ended, by the way. We recently looked at the story in the New Testament of Ananias and, uh, Ananias and Sapphira, a believing husband and wife team who inwardly determined to sell a piece of property they owned and then give the proceeds to the Messianic community. However, in secret, what did they do? They held some of it back. When questioned by the church leadership whether they had actually given all the proceeds, they answered, yes, we did. A lie. God killed them instantly for it. Folks, New Testament times, it didn't end. So you see from this declaration that the farmer makes in Deuteronomy 26.13 that indeed he's held nothing back from the holy portion set aside for God, it is precisely the same form that was used in the book of Acts to question Ananias and Sapphira. To hold back that which has been promised to Jehovah is to misappropriate holy property. Malachi says it is to rob God. The next portion of the declaration is that the worshiper has donated the first fruits as a poor tithe to fulfill all of God's commandments concerning the giving of first fruits, therefore properly discharging his obligations as prescribed by the law. Verse 14 then begins a series of statements as part of this vow declaration the worshiper makes to God in which the worshiper says that he has handled this holy portion accordingly, while it's been in his house. Now, now there's more to handling God's holy property than simply giving it up when it's called for. It can be defiled by misuse in the interim. Now part of the reason for this vow statement and some of the others is that because this tithe was taken to the local storehouse instead of being given to the priests, so there were fewer checks and balances. When given to the temple in normal years, priests inspected the produce to be sure of both the quality and the quantity. If the quality was not up to snuff, or the quantity was suspect, the priest wouldn't accept it. He'd turn that worshipper away. But here with the poor tithe, there's a lot that could be done in secret. You can imagine how easy it would be for a giver to give less than the best of his produce when he knew it was going to the least valued people in this society, not to the temple. Likely nobody would be any the wiser. And the first of those statements that he makes... It's kind of like a vow. Is that he has not defiled this poor tithe offering by eating a portion of it while it was, while he was in mourning. In other words, a mourner has, who has been in the same tent or house as a corpse becomes unclean. And if a mourner, mourner, while he's in an unclean state, should eat a portion of that offering that had been set aside for God, even if in good faith he replaced what he had eaten at a later time, then that entire holy portion was now defiled. It was no longer suitable for tithing. Remember, contact was something unclean infects that which was formerly clean. Further, this declaration indicates that apart from being unclean, due to nearness to or contact with a corpse, the second statement is that the worshiper hasn't handled God's holy property while he was unclean for for whatever reason. Now the next declaration by the giver is a very odd-sounding one. He declares that he hasn't given any of the holy portions to the dead. What does that mean? Now I've shared with you on many occasions that the biblical Hebrews maintained many superstitions about death and the afterlife that were very common among the, the various peoples and cultures of the Middle East. And I've also commented that there is evidence of it sprinkled all throughout the New and Old Testaments, and it's memorialized in archaic sayings and, and practices that kind of, kind of fly right over our modern heads when we read about them in the Holy Scriptures. So, someone said to me a few weeks ago that it seems as though in the Bible era God condoned, maybe even allowed, for these nearly universal customs of ancestor worship and life-after-death beliefs among his own set-apart people. And that he seemed to do that at the same time he was giving Israel very specific laws and information against doing it. And you know what? To a degree, I have to agree with that assessment. The matter of what happens after one dies is only briefly discussed um, in the New Testament. Almost not at all in the old. There are vague biblical references to Sheol, right? The, the, the dead going to be with their fathers, the underground chambers of Abraham's bosom, Paradise, Hades, and such. But the reason that there are literally scores of varying doctrines within the church about hell and heaven and purgatory and resurrection and so on is because we're simply not given that much information in the scriptures about death and what comes after it. I mean, I consider this one of those mysteries that God has determined he's going to hold for his own glory and he's only going to share that which he deems we need to know. Apparently what man needed to know was practically nothing in the days of the patriarchs and only slightly more in the days of the kings and the prophets, and eventually a few more pieces of the puzzle were added in the New Testament era. Archaeologists have uncovered ancient Hebrew grave sites that had very strange holes, small diameter tubes, if you would, passageways, that went from ground level down to where the, the, the body lay buried in repose. They were used to drop morsels of food and beverage down to the corpse. Ancestor worship was practiced differently among different cultures. Um, It had different meanings to them. Indeed, some actually did worship, literally worship them as deity and prayed to them. I'm not saying... That that's what the Hebrews did. There's no evidence of that. Other cultures didn't offer worship to them. They just simply decided that some essence of that dead person lived on, and so certainly they had a need to eat, (laughs) or that they had ongoing needs like perfume. Got to be stinky down there, (laughs) and incense. And most all of them craved communication with the living. So it was critical that a person had children who would then come and attend to his afterlife. And during almost all of the biblical era, a significant section of the Hebrew society practiced this custom in in, in one way or another. Now with that bit of information... Now you can see why the worshipper in Deuteronomy 26.14 swears what? He's not given any food, any of God's portion, to who? The dead. That's what they're talking about. It's not that the normal practice of giving food to the dead was necessarily being prohibited by God. It's that any kind of contact with a grave site automatically defiles the worshipper. And so if the food dropped down that hole to the body came from God's holy portion, then that powerful uncleanness that comes from death would render whatever that worshiper had set aside as his tithe to now be unworthy, to be given to God. That's the principle. In verse 15, the focus now of the statement... Shifts from the individual to the nation as a whole. Now, I've mentioned on numerous occasions that while in biblical Hebrewism, the focus is more on the community of Israel as a, as an entity, and the, and the role of the individual is primarily as a member of that community by biblical Hebrewism. In Christianity, we tend to focus almost entirely on the individual. The community of God in Christianity plays a lesser role than the individual. Well, in this mystical four-chapter segment of Deuteronomy, we're going to see more attention paid to the individual worshiper than any place else in the Torah. Now, not surprisingly, at the end of this series of vow declarations by and for the individual worshiper who's giving his his offerings, verse 15 gets back to the more typical Torah format of placing the role of the whole congregation as above that of an individual worshiper. So the worshiper finishes by asking God to bless all Israel as a result of each individual worshiper displaying their proper obedience to God's command. Next, Moses states that the key to pleasing God is to faithfully adhere to His rules and regulations with all your heart and soul. This, of course, reminds us of the great commandment that supports all other commandments. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. Remember, remember, in the biblical era, heart means mind. The idea is that every aspect of our being is to submit to the direction of the Lord at all times. This certainly punctures the modern Western notion of separation of church and state. Or the compartmentalization of human activities into the religious and the secular. That's now kind of accepted as the politically correct view a person seeking elected office today has a litmus test that he or she must be willing to separate their faith from their public duties even mentioning God is today cause for suspicion if not absolute disqualification to hold public office but even the average synagogue or church goer today finds that life is much easier if we only live out our faith during Shabbat or from about nine to noon on Sundays. But then put that shelf back on the faith, that faith back on the shelf rather for all, all the rest of the week. Life's just a bunch easier that way. Now, verses 17, 18, and 19 are very powerful ones in my estimation. First, they fully demonstrate the mutual nature of covenant relationship that's been established between Israel and Jehovah by means of the Mosaic Covenant. Second, these verses finalize the acceptance of the terms of the covenant by both God and by Israel. Third, a summary of what precisely each side has agreed to is presented. And the Lord says that Israel's already agreed to the covenant, individual by individual. And that means that Israel will walk in his ways, Israel will observe his laws and commands, Israel will obey God. And the key to understanding this is that Israel has agreed to to more than just an intellectual assent to God's rules, they've agreed to hold it in their hearts in a way that brings about action. And in return for Israel's intellectual assent and action to demonstrate their faithfulness, Jehovah covenants that as of this moment, Israel is his treasured people above every people and nation on earth. Further than in God's eyes, Israel is holy. Not because they're inherently better than anybody else, but because they have submitted to his covenant offer. So now that lets him be free to declare them holy, which he's just done. (coughs) Further, God has given Israel preeminence above all the other nations of the earth. And again, it's not that the rest of humanity doesn't matter to the Lord. Rather it is that He's given Israel priority status. It's just like the pattern that was demonstrated among the tribes of Israel. All of Israel is holy, but the Levites have been set apart. They've made a step above, and thus a step holier than common Israel. Further, from the tribe of the Levites, a clan of priests was set apart from them, declared a bit more holy than the common Levites. And then from among the clan of the Levitical priests, the family of the high priest has been set apart and made the most holy of all the Israelites. You know, I have such a bittersweet feeling about this declaration of God. I know that He keeps His promises. And though thousands of years pass, the return of the Jewish people to their homeland proves that He never changes, He never forgets. But I also have such trepidation and heart sickness over my brothers and sisters in the faith who are worse than blind to this never-ending promise of God that Israel is and shall remain His precious treasure. Way too many steadfastly insist that God has abandoned His treasure, Israel, in favor of, of the church, a Gentile church. Folks, if God can do that, think about this. If God can do that, why would we think that at some point in another newer revelation He wouldn't abandon the church for something else or somebody else? If His promise to Israel was forever and He broke it, what does that mean for us? But you say... Jesus promises he'll never abandon us. Well, that's essentially the same promise the Father made to Israel. He recorded it in numerous places throughout the Old Testament. So if we can find an excuse for the Father to permanently abandon his people Israel, then we can certainly contemplate a situation whereby Jesus can permanently abandon his followers. But the really good news is that neither has the Father given up on Israel, nor will Yeshua give up on us. Let's get that message out to both the Jewish people on this earth and to the Gentile church. Now I want to conclude this chapter with this comment. The entire tone and context of what we have just concluded makes it clear that what God is seeking is a personal relationship with men. Individual by individual, but individuals that form communities and then that community has a relationship. Do you see it, build? Obe- obedience to the precepts and principles of His commandments is His prescribed means of our demonstrating our love to Him. Not just feeling it. But at the same time, keeping those commandments is not the means to our justification or to the establishment of our own righteousness any more than it was for the Hebrews. Only when one follows God in a heartfelt way, only when one makes our relationship with Him the focus of our lives in love and submission, only when one is redeemed by the only Redeemer there will ever be, does doing the commandments have any meaning at all? Let me remind you that before the law, the Torah was given, Israel was already redeemed, weren't they? God didn't say to Israel let me give you the law, then we'll see how you do. <laughs> and if you meet my standard, then I'll redeem you. Now, the pattern is, he first redeemed them from Egypt, then he gave them the law. Redemption first. Yes. Then you're equipped to be obedient to the commandments. It was that way in the Old Testament. It's that way In the new. Let's move on to Deuteronomy chapter 27. Page 226 in your complete Jewish Bibles. Then Moshe and all the leaders of Israel gave orders to the people and they said, observe all the mitzvot I'm giving you today and when you cross the Yardang to the land Adonai your God is giving you you are to set up large stones and put plaster on them. And after crossing over write this Torah on them every word so that you can enter the land Adonai your God is giving you a land flowing with milk and honey as Adonai the God of your ancestors promised to you. When you have crossed the Jordan, you're to set up these stones as I'm ordering you today on Mount Ebal, and put plaster on them. You are to erect an altar to Adonai your God, an altar made of stones. You're not to use any iron tool on them, but you're to build the altar of God, your Adonai, of uncut stones. You're to offer burnt offerings on it to Adonai your God. You're to offer sacrifice. You're to sacrifice peace offerings. Eat there. Be joyful in the presence of Adonai your God. You're to write on the stones all the words of this Torah very clearly. Next Moses and the Kohanim, the priests who are Levites, spoke to all Israel and they said, Be quiet and listen, Israel. Today you have become the people of Adonai your God. Therefore you are to listen to what Adonai your God says and obey his commands and laws which I'm giving you today. And that same day, Moses commissioned the people as follows. These are the ones who are to stand on Mount Gerzim and bless the people after you have crossed the Jordan. Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, Yisachar, Yosef, Benjamin. And while there, and while these are to stand on Mount Ebal for the curse, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, Naphtali, the Levites speaking loudly, will proclaim to every man of Israel a curse on anyone who makes a carved or metal image something Adonai detests, the handiwork of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret. All the people are to respond by saying, Amen. A curse on anyone who dishonors his father or mother. All the people are to say, Amen. A curse on anyone who moves his neighbor's boundary marker and all the people are to say amen. A curse on anyone who causes a blind person to lose his way on the road and all the people are to say amen. A curse on anyone who interferes with justice for the foreigner, the orphan, the widow and all the people are to say amen. A curse on anyone who has sexual relations with his father's wife because he has violated his father's rights. And all the people are to say, Amen. A curse on anyone who has sexual relations with any kind of animal. And all the people are to say, Amen. A curse on anyone who has sexual relations with his sister, no matter whether she's the daughter of his father or of his mother. And all the people are to say, Amen. A curse on anyone who has sexual relations with his mother in law. All the people are to say, Amen. A curse on anyone who secretly attacks a fellow member of the community. All the people are to say, Amen. A curse on anyone who accepts a bribe to kill an innocent person. All the people are to say, Amen. A curse on anyone who does not confirm the words of this Torah by putting them into practice. And all the people are to say, Amen. This is one of those places in the Bible that's a very major bother to Torah scholars. It's a very curious chapter that some say must be out of place. Some claim that in the process of handing down the Bible and the various redactions that happened to it over the centuries, somewhere along the line, things got out of order. I suppose that's possible. But also understand that even if this chapter is out of order everything it says is still true. No principles change. There's no cause to be concerned. And by the way, it's by no means universally agreed upon that this perceived problem of chapter order actually even exists. Now the major problem, it seems, is in the form. Notice that since the beginning of Deuteronomy, we have Moses speaking a sermon. And he's using primarily the present tense. And then the narrative uses a lot of I and a lot of we. And then notice how suddenly this all changes up. And it speaks in the third person. It's not Moses speaking. It's someone speaking about what Moses said. What Moses did. It's speaking in the past tense. Later it speaks of multiple covenant renewal ceremonies that are that are each occurring in different places. But the wording makes it appear like they happen simultaneously. Now I have no intention of delving deeply into the relatively new academic discipline called literary criticism even though it is from the academic discipline that these skepticisms that I told you about arise. That is the literary critic says that the grammar and the form isn't what they expect it to be. Therefore, the content must be suspect. Now rather, I see little problem with the content other than a couple of very minor issues that has little bearing except maybe as a curiosity. And I'll point these out to you when we get to them. Now chapter 27 documents some ceremonies that mark the arrival of Israel into the promised land, Canaan. And these ceremonies are specifically to take place at Mount Ebal and Gerzim. And there, the curses and the blessings of the covenant of Moses are going to be pronounced. Now in verse 1, an anomaly is uncovered. Here is the only place in the Torah where the elders join Moses in commanding the people. Now some scholars think this is also some kind of late redaction. And a change. But to me it's very natural. It makes all the sense in the world. Moses is about to die. He's not going to enter the promised land. And he's already been told that. He knows it. And when one is about to turn over authority to somebody else, it's always been typical to publicly display display the legitimacy of this transition by including the, the incoming authority figure or figures at appropriate times when the current leader is making speeches and declarations to the people. Moses is simply showing the elders the ropes. And he's demonstrating to the people what it's going to look like when he's not around. He wants no suspicion of foul play. He doesn't want any cause for rebellion or doubt. It's going to fall to Joshua, the priests, and the elders to rule Israel in only a matter of days from the time of this sermon that we're reading. There'll be no more Moses after that. Here's where we encounter another difficulty. Verse 2 says that as soon as Israel crosses over the Jordan into Canaan, they're to erect these large stones as memorial markers. The problem is, it says they're to erect them at Mount Ebal, even though they crossed over the Jordan down near Jericho. Mount Ebal is a solid 30 miles north of Jericho as the crow flies. But due to the ruggedness of the air, it's got to be at least a five-day journey between those two points. So where it says, on the day you cross the Jordan, they are to set up these stones on a ball, that that would seem impossible to accomplish, considering where they crossed. Well, in light of what we read elsewhere about this historic event, though, likely what we need to take this phrase to mean in a more common sense is, once you cross the Jordan, after you've gotten over the Jordan. In other words, it's just a common way of speaking that means to do it expediently after you get across the Jordan. It doesn't mean to do it before the sun sets on the day you step over the Jordan. Now the Israelites are told that they're to coat these large flat stones with plaster. And then they're to inscribe into that wet plaster the words of the Torah. Now first let's recall that while we tend to use the word Torah as a, a technical title for the first five books of the Bible, in fact it's also a generic word that simply means instruction or teaching. The command then is not to write the entire contents of the book of Moses on these plastered stones. Rather, it is to write the high points of Moses' sermon in Deuteronomy, the one that he's just been giving. Primarily this general list of blessings and curses that we're right in the midst of having pronounced for us. Now, writing on plastered rocks wasn't something employed by all cultures and certainly it was not employed by nomads. But writing on plaster was a usual and customary way of memorializing important edicts and events in Egypt. This procedure would have been totally familiar to the Israelites. Anyone who's been to Egypt will notice that all these beautiful carvings that we see with all these hieroglyphs are all in plaster. Besides the large amount of writing that was being called for. This could be accomplished in a fraction of the time by doing it into plaster, as opposed to kind of chiseling it out on hard rock. Well, in addition to setting up these enormous embossed stones with the words of Moses on them at Ebal, they were also to build an altar for sacrificing to Yehovah, And the stones were to be carefully piled up to create a usable altar, but they were not to be formed and chiseled into perfect shapes using iron tools. The building material for the altar was to be only of natural stones, just as they were found lying on the ground. Now Mount Ebal and its twin mountain, Gersim, were located in the old stomping grounds of the patriarch Abraham. No doubt that had something to do with why they were chosen as the location of this historic covenant event, renewal ceremony. Mount Ebal is about three miles north of Gerizim and the city in the plain of Shechem, today called Nablus, is in between the two of them. Mount Ebal rose to a height of about 1,200 feet above the city of Shechem. So whatever... Would take place up there was going to be seen in miles in every direction. Now, verse eight gives us the instruction that the teachings of Jehovah through Moses that were to be inscribed in the plaster were to be written by er hetef, literally setting it out well. In other words, it was to be prominent; it was to be very easy to read. Okay. the rabbis have done some excellent work on this subject and they point out that the intent of this instruction is that the common man could read it and understand it that was the idea since these were the words of god and since israel had a priesthood you know it would have been kind of expected in the religious mindset of that that era that the words would be kind of a mystical form that only God's direct servant, his priests, could ever correctly render. That was actually kind of the norm for most Middle Eastern cultures. That the priests were the only ones entitled to the divine words and the only ones who could comprehend them. The goal, of course, was to control the people. After all, if only the priests possessed the divine word and even where it was written publicly, only the priest could decipher it, then whatever the priest said was truth. There couldn't be any dissent. These plastered stones, written plainly upon, were monuments to demonstrate that the word of God was to be possessed by all Israel, not just one privileged class of people. Now we've all studied, at one point or another, the European Inquisition in school. And the heart of the matter of the early Inquisition was that certain people outside of the institutional church began to acquire copies of scripture. Lay people wanted to read the word for themselves. Some cases it was because they didn't trust the church anymore. Those people were considered criminals, as only the church authority was allowed to have scripture because they were the only ones, supposedly, with the divine knowledge and authorization to interpret the divine word. If the people at large actually possessed scripture, then church control over the people would be a whole lot more difficult thousands and thousands of believers were burned at the stake for no other reason than they possessed a fragment of a page of the Bible. Now while in time those laws against owning Scripture were abandoned, another transition began in more modern times whereby even though Bibles are cheap and plentiful, people lost interest in Scripture and have been encouraged to accept the denomination's articles of faith or doctrinal pillars instead of spending the time to study God's Word themselves. In that vein, I'd like to close tonight with a quote from Duane L. Christensen, a highly acclaimed Christian Bible scholar. He says this, One of the curious features of modern worship within the evangelical churches today is the absence of public recitation of the Scriptures as an end and a means in itself. Much time is given to singing songs of praise, many of which are simply biblical texts put to music, but very little time is given to to hearing the Bible read other than perhaps the typically very limited text on which the pastor's sermon is based. We need to find ways to expose our people to the whole of the Bible in public worship in the manner that ancient Israel experienced Deuteronomy on Mount Ebal. Next time, we'll take up that pivotal ceremony on the breezy summit of Mount Ebal above the ancient city of Shechem. That'll do it for tonight.